Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Well, hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to Suncast. It is such a pleasure to have you here, and I am glad that you're tuning in. January is almost coming to a close, and what a January we've had President Now, President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris are working hard at bringing renewable energy and climate action to the forefront and bringing jobs back to our shores, giving us all the opportunity to participate in this democracy and elevate the game for clean energy. And today's guest has done that in spades. If you listened to episode 262, then You're no stranger to Mr. Sheldon Kimber of Intersect Power. But I wanted to bring Sheldon back, especially in this month where we're thinking hard about what can the current administration and our industry do to elevate our voice, to ensure that we take massive action on climate change. And Sheldon wrote an op-ed back in the fall. You know, in particular... It got traction on LinkedIn, Jigger Shaw and many others commented on it. And so I wanted to bring Sheldon on to talk specifically about this article that he wrote titled Software is Eating the World, but Steel is the Hardware it Runs On. And it's a reply to Mark Andreessen's It's Time to Build essay. So I hope that you'll tune in, listen up to this dialogue where Sheldon and I dive into how clean energy as an industry is like building the Intercontinental Railroad, building the infrastructure like dams uh, and and many other facets of the reconstruction of our country in post-war times. I hope that you find this intriguing. I certainly did. I love listening to how Sheldon thinks about how our economy can be lifted and how our role in it is critical and important. If you like what you hear, be sure you subscribe to the show. And if you're new here, thank you so much for lending us your ears and your time. The only resource that you can't have back. Hope that we care for it well in the next hour that you give us. Of course, I would encourage you to please go check out more than 325 other founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. We've been doing this for a little while and I love hearing your feedback and insight how this is helping improve and change your own trajectory, business, and career. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we're going to jump back into a dialogue with uh, one of our tribe favorite conversations from back in the the winter of 2020, all the way back, episode 229, we had Sheldon Kimber, the CEO and founder of Intersect 
Power, one of the preeminent developers of utility-scale renewables here in the United States. And if you aren't familiar with Sheldon's background, as I mentioned in the intro, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 229. Today, we're going to focus on an article and my thoughts, and Sheldon and I are going to talk a bit about the ramifications of an article that Sheldon published back in October. I think it was mid-October in which Sheldon takes aim at the eponymous uh, Mark Andreessen. Many of you may have, may have read, as I did, uh, our Andreessen's article called It's Time to Build. And I was really pleased to see when Sheldon came out with his article in October, which was, in a, it was just a, a response, a direct response as an industry, as an individual who has built gigawatts of solar power, directly critiquing Andreessen's It's Time to Build. It caught my attention, but not just mine. Hundreds of folks in our industry reacted to Sheldon's LinkedIn post, uh, which you can read. We'll link to it over on the Intersect Power blog. It was re-shared by Jigger, Dan Sugar, Emily Kirsch, lots of influencers in the solar industry, not only uh, aligned with Sheldon's perspective and gave him the virtual applause for having written it. But I reached out and said, hey, Sheldon, I love what you've written here. Let's talk about the implications. So with that, Sheldon is back on Suncast to talk about 2021 and it is a time to build. And what does that really mean for our industry? Sheldon, welcome back to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. It's great to be here. Sheldon, you don't mention it overtly in the article, uh, but it seems like your posture and position is not one that implicitly uh, would support the zeitgeist around the Green New Deal. Am I, am I getting a good sense of kind of where your head's at on this? You know, I'm not sure about the zeitgeist. I think maybe the zeitgeist I support, but beyond that, I'm not really sure what the Green New Deal is beyond zeitgeist. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. it, it is really just a cultural artifact more than it is policy. If you really go through and read it, I mean, all, all it really says is, you know, to some degree, we need to link climate policy with a whole bunch of other social uh, uh, issues. Uh, uh-huh. Really, frankly, just in order to build a big enough tent that we can, um, you know, mobilize policy to actually do something. Now, I don't think that's wrong. I actually think that that's some of what I'm trying to say here. But what I'm trying to say here is, what I believe is a far more deeply informed view on the Green Deal, if you will. The Green Deal really says very little about industrial policy, uh, the renewables industry, exactly how we're going to do some of this, you know, domestic manufacturing and, and all sorts of that, you know. And so, it, it, you know, my critique is the Green New Deal is a wonderful notion and not a lot more. And what I'm trying to do here is put an informed point of view that might actually accomplish some of what the Green New Deal Uh, is trying to do, I believe. You know, one of the things that stood out to me, uh, and I think, as I mentioned, the way that you structure the argument of your article is uh, Mark Andreessen in uh, in his article and his uh, post basically said, we don't appear to have the stomach for infrastructure, almost like we've become a lazy society, not implicitly realizing that he's uh, implicit or complicit with his uh, theme of software is eating the world of creating the kind of technology that has robbed us of the incentives and the motivation to actually build real world assets. So I love the, the two sides of the coin that are posed and Dreesen saying we need better intestinal fortitude around this topic and your counterpoint. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We have plenty of intestinal fortitude. We're lacking a few 
infrastructural requirements to bring back the glory days of old where we could actually deploy more assets, employ more people. So let's get into some of the undergirding uh, sort of thought behind the article. Can you talk to me a bit about your frustration as someone who has been steeped in Silicon Valley culture, Sand Hill Road, uh, you know, getting an MBA and building more than one company in the Bay Area? What frustrates you right now about the way uh, the current tech frenzy of the last 20 plus years is impacting our real world infrastructure requirements? Yeah, I think that your question really brings out sort of the opening premise of, of, of the article, which is we as a society have come to sort of deify our technology leaders and the companies that they lead. The Andreessen article itself, while I'm, you know, I caveat heavily and sort of try to be as polite as possible in the article, I will be honest and say that, you know, there's an underlying arrogance to his premise where you have someone writing a call to arms about how our society has, you know, stopped building things from hospitals to, you know, infrastructure. And at the same time, you know, this whole article is appearing on a website of a VC firm that literally has the tagline, software is eating the world in the top left corner. And that, that right there, <laughs> that, that juxtaposition is just the absolute height of, you know, I think the, 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 the absolute cognitive dissonance that I experienced while reading, reading the article. Um, and that's really what motivated me to try and reply. Our industry doesn't have celebrity leadership, right? I mean, don't have any rock star CEOs. The rock star CEOs, I, I think, you know, you ask yourself, why are, you know, why do these, why do the tech industry, why does the tech industry have that? Well, you've got public companies, folks who have publicly made billions of dollars in the sort of, you know, American, you know, fantasy of, you know, get big, take your company public. In addition to that, they make consumer products, which we'll get into. So these are companies and, and that touch people's lives daily through consumer products and their leadership is, you know, fantastically wealthy in a very public manner through um, the way that they've raised capital. So they have an enormous amount of access to the public megaphone, if you will. Really, uh, most of our industry does not. And so what this was, and, and you know, I'll be honest and say this didn't get, you know, this got no, no pickup compared to his article. His article went viral, right? Mine got read by the industry I'm in to some degree. It's exemplary. Right? And, it's exemplary of what we're trying to, uh, of what we're trying to say as well. And let's not lose the irony, however, as well, that most of the Suncast listeners are, we're preaching to the choir here. And what I want to make sure is we communicate to the choir, what is the message that we need to talk about at the cocktail parties? What is the message that we need to carry as a community to our public leaders? And how can we actually begin to help change the narrative, get a bigger voice? I mean, companies like Suncast have a role in trying to help give the intersect powers of the world more voice such that, you know, we may never have the voice of Bezos, but we can certainly uh, get the ear of HuffPo and Washington Post and the New York Times. Some of the reason why I set it up as a little bit of a confrontation with uh, Andreessen is to try and, you know, make this a, public, a public, yeah, a public debate, right? Let's make this, uh, let's have this conversation out in public. Let's, 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 you know, because I, look, I don't think Andreessen is, is a bad person. I'm sure we would have an amazing conversation about this. I'm sure he's an incredibly bright person who gets a lot of this stuff. You know, and it's it's hard to express a you know highly nuanced opinion in a you know short blog article that goes viral. But at the same time, in sort of calling him out, my hope was 
to bring this discussion to a, you know, a, a, a higher profile. The thing that I think we as a community can do is, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to do a number of things. We've, you know, first, I think we have to sort of highlight this quasi libertarian credo that the tech industry sort of brings to everything. You know, it's, it's this, this American fantasy that has been spun, which is, you know, if we all, we can all get rich, if we, you know, start a company, work hard, that's an interesting fantasy. But what it leads to is this, this kind of feeling that somehow every, all of that success is earned, that it's all yours, and that you alone, sort of independent of anything else around you, have earned this money, have, have changed this world. And the reality is, that we need a huge amount more humility in this country around that vision of America of the American you know you know fantasy of success because 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 that fantasy of success is just that it is a fantasy all of those people that have done that including myself have been backstopped by an enormous amount of public infrastructure you know public support whether it be the roads and highways and power plants or the public education system nobody has stood alone and what's more if you really look even deeper than that there are a whole bunch of other social undercurrents as well because all of those people have benefited hugely from from society there's very few people who are starting companies in silicon valley that have you know pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and you know all the rest of that right i mean I came to this country as an immigrant. Great story, right? Great theme. I can put it out there all over the place. Guess what? My parents both went to college before they came here. They worked their butts off, put me in college. I had a great public education. You know, I'm a white male. I'm standing on the shoulders and on the infrastructure of, an, of generations before me. And I wouldn't dare stand here and tell you that I deserve everything that I've got. That whole mindset I think is what keeps us from achieving the consensus, the political and social consensus that we're going to talk about here today. And I think that 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 absolute individualist mindset, that quasi-libertarian credo, if you will, is what drives Americans to deify the consumer tech businesses and business models and really puts us in a position as a nation where we completely ignore almost anything that doesn't fit that mold, including the industries that we need so desperately to build out our infrastructure and in particular, our clean infrastructure. And that's what really the, the article, that's the core of the article. Yeah. And, and around that core is the idea uh, that we don't have, you know, we've talked for the last uh, eight plus years in this country about building out new infrastructure, building an infrastructure bill that addresses the core needs of our crumbling civic infrastructure. We as an industry, especially solar, are rebuilding on private dollars, uh, and in some cases public dollars, the failing infrastructure of a 100 plus year old grid. One of the critiques in the piece that you wrote and a through line is how technology is in a sense, tech companies are transitory and infrastructure is persistent. Can you help unpack how the idea of infrastructure as persistent gives us a through line to building that common cause and, and championing climate change? And how, how can we use this idea of infrastructure as persistent to, to begin to captivate the audience? And, and this is where I'll have to apologize to all those reading the, the article, if you do go and read it, is it's a bit of a, a, an opus written by the son of a preacher who um, has a degree in you know, economics. So it's, a, it's an inspirational romp through the microeconomics of uh, infrastructure. 
Um, but with that said, I'll try to tease out kind of what the what the what the the core elements are because I, I think I spend probably too much time in the article on this piece of it. So I'll try and summarize it. And what I mean by this piece of it is, you know, trying to lay out for folks what the differences between tech and infrastructure are, what the differences between those products and industries are, and why the needs of the one to grow are different than the needs of the other, and then why our society in its current position, you know, has the necessary elements to grow the consumer and technology-oriented segments, but lacks the the necessary societal conditions to grow the infrastructure industries that we so desperately need. And so, you know, those differences really come down to a handful of things. First is, you know, the scalability. Uh, The second is kind of like the the capital intensity. The third is um, the elements of, um, and it's sort of part of the second actually, which is, you know, the economics of production, if you will. The third then would be really just around, regulatory and purchasing decisions and how the customers are actually governed by the regulators and not necessarily by the, their, their own preferences. And you also put out, point out in the article that packaged in this regulatory piece, part three, is the idea that tech deployment and scalability has a direct consumer element that infrastructure by its very nature can't or doesn't. And that's a limiting factor for how dollars are invested, how quickly they're invested, et cetera. Keep going. So, The answer to your question is really focused on the difference between tech products and infrastructure products and the difference between those industries. An interesting way to look at this would be, you know, to think about infrastructure as essentially a tech product, right? Let's use the analogies of the tech industry. About 100 years ago, the infrastructure industry was upended by a revolutionary product in much the same way as the technology industry was with the internet. And that product was coal power, right? actually significantly longer than 100 years ago, but about just over 100 years ago was when it really began to, to, to scale and take off in you know, the early part of the 20th century. On that first initial release of, you know, of the product, there was unfortunately what the tech industry calls a zero-day bug, right? And that bug lay hidden in the code, if you will, mm-hmm. of coal power for decades. Over time, that bug became more and more clear and its impact became more and more clear. At first, the bug showed up in soot and, you know, particulate matter, asthmatic problems, breathing issues for people who live near a coal plant. The next phase was a little bit more of the acid rain, mercury, as we became, as we began to understand the implication of the bug, you know, and then the third phase was the fact that it would essentially warm the world to the point that it, you know, altered the course of human history and, and, and our human species if we allowed it to continue. And so that bug basically was the emissions from coal, right? But nobody at the time really understood that there was this issue. So, you know, in software, what happens when you put out a new product and you have what they call a zero-day bug or an issue in the code, you know, on the day it's actually, you know, the product actually kind of drops. The, the fix is a simple patch, right? And so you discover the bug and you are able to push a patch directly to the computer, the phone, whatever it is. You can increment the product immediately, rapidly. In infrastructure, that's simply impossible. Once you've built a coal-fired power plant, 
in, in most cases, um, while there's some small things you can do around the edges, the, that if you've got a fundamental bug, such as, you know, air pollution or, you know, carbon emissions, it can't be changed, right? You've built that plant and likely you don't have the, the, the money or the political will to tear it down and build something new, at least not for a very long time, because you're going to have to sort of defray the cost of that plant um, and, and extract the benefits of that plant before you're willing to build another one. There's also quite public facing ramifications for legions of careers who approved the construction of that product that are not hidden away in the in the dorm rooms of Google and Apple in the form of, of software engineering. These are public policymakers. These are uh, constituencies that um, are not willing to admit if so, that something went wrong in the creation of this zero day bug. That's absolutely true. I mean, and that's something I don't even hit on in the article, which is where we're going here and where, where, what the point of all of what I'm saying is, you know, in, in describing infrastructure versus tech is that infrastructure is persistent. If you walk away with one thing from this, you know, description of the two industries, infrastructure is persistent. And that is the core of it. And Nico, what you're saying is in, in an element of that that I hadn't even hit on, which is there's a social persistence to it because the consensus that is required to build it brings a lot of different people together to, you know, kind of put their stamp of, of, of consensus on it. And that, that essentially creates a lot of commitments that then, you know, public commitments that are then going to have to be upended if a flaw is, you know, to be admitted. So, if infrastructure is persistent, we won't go into the, the depth that I did in the article, but you kind of also have to understand a little bit of why it's persistent. Infrastructure, unlike you know, software and consumer electronics, has a huge capital intensity to it. So it requires bankers and capital markets and others to come together around it. It has a definite marginal cost, for instance, to build another coal plant there's a huge marginal cost. You know, the, the next coal plant in line costs an enormous amount to deploy, as does the next one. It doesn't exhibit sort of the zero marginal cost production of software where you build Facebook once, you know, it doesn't take, you know, another billion dollars to build, you know, to, to, to build another copy of the software, if you will. In addition to all of that, it's, it, it's built in an industry with that's heavily regulated. So that means that, Purchasing decisions are made almost more by the regulators and in a very centralized manner rather than distributed purchasing decisions of people buying a copy of Windows or a Mac computer or an iPhone. And so all of this comes together to sort of produce a product that can never scale in the same way as a tech product. That's the key difference is the lack of scalability and the lack of virality. You'll never have a viral clean infrastructure product. So that's what I mean by infrastructure is persistent. It's predicated on all of those differences and elements in the product itself. All right, so you've got Salesforce for your sales team. How's that working out for you? How great would it be if someone could actually just come in and really make your whole solar sales process deliver results? And what's more, what if you could actually see all the sales data in one dashboard? Pipeline, forecast, aging, deals that are about to close, the whole darn thing. Look, I have someone who can help do all that. They're called Indium. And right now, for a limited time, you can get a Salesforce tune-up, a process assessment from them entirely on the house. Just click on the Indium logo over at mysuncast.com and 
start getting more value from Salesforce finally. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15 minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out. If this sounds remotely interesting to you and let's have a chat, see if there is in fact a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways. Shelly, one of the things that I took away from the article is how, you know, it's interesting in the 21st century, we don't seem to have a societal focus on common, a common accord, common agreement about what is necessary to be done. I was a bit stunned that I hadn't put the two together on my own. The way that foreign countries have been able to lower their, uh, their inherent production costs is through a systematic reduction of the input costs. One of the major input costs of the industries that we lament losing like cement and steel and glass is energy. It's an energy intensive product. You and I talked offline and I think it's worth probably bringing into here how in the 19th century and 20th century, we built infrastructure as a common public good that the public benefited from, not just directly because they could get on a train that uh, on top of the track that had just been built, but they could get electricity from the Hoover Dam and they could also buy the bonds that fund it. So how do we get back to a place where American has a common theme, it's not co-opted by one group, and we can feasibly bring steel and glass and cement industries back to undergird our infrastructure growth and everyone benefit from it? So now we're beginning to get, you know, more interesting, I think, for, 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 the, for the listener. Um, the, the, the elements before this were part of a highly technical argument, uh, microeconomic argument, that the kind of thing I love, um, but not everybody loves. So, you know, feel free to read the article and, and geek out on that. And I'm happy to have those technical conversations. But I think what you're unpacking right now is the core of really maybe what should be taken away from what I'm, I'm trying to say. And that is... It requires societal consensus to build infrastructure. And that is true because of everything I said before this about the nature of the product, the persistence, and all the other elements of the actual product itself. So this societal consensus is something that we've had at various moments in our country's history. You know, World War II, oftentimes centered around conflict or existential threats to our way of life. You call it common cause as well. That's right. And so that common cause has come together around existential threats to our way of life and massive economic opportunities 
where expansion of those opportunities is very clear what needs to be done and benefits you know, a broad swath of the country. Socioeconomically, its, it's benefits are broadly dispersed. So I you know, was reading a book that, that we talked about, Nothing Like It in the World by Stephen Ambrose. It's a fantastic book. Um, there are places where you should just, you know, where he is a historian sort of geeks out on the number of nails and, you know, kegs of gunpowder. But beyond that, it's a very interesting book. You know, it's all about the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. And I was reading it having just moved to Truckee, California. And, you know, Truckee features prominently as, as a place where, you know, the Sierra Pacific uh, came through across the, 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 Sierra, um, the Sierra Mountains. The thing that you realize in reading something like that is the extent of, again, common cause that it takes to really take up a common vision. And so that common vision was to unite the country with a railroad that would allow essentially travel from Asia to the East Coast, you know, without going, you know, by, by boat, um, you know, Through around, Panama. Yeah. Yeah, around yeah, the horn, at the actually, time. at that time. Yeah, at the time, around the horn. So that, that is the common vision. And it was a magnificent vision. But the common cause was, was, was more interesting in the sense that you were, you were coming out of the Civil War. You had an enormous number of young men who needed jobs. You were trying to heal the country. You were trying to bring them back together. Many of them went to work together on the railroad. The right number of people and the right breadth of people benefited, right? And so you could call, bring together common cause because everybody was forced into a community that had to make a communal decision about what was good for them together. And while, yes, Leland Stanford and you know, the owners of the railroad became some of the most wealthy people in the country, there were also an enormous number of you know, well-paid jobs for you know, Civil War veterans and, and immigrants and others. It was dangerous. There were a lot of other bad things about this. I'm not trying to oversimplify that. But this is, this, you know, this is an example of how kind of common cause is formed in a community that makes a compromised choice and oft- oftentimes that benefits all of them in some way to come together and chase a common vision. And that's, the, that's how you get these successes of enormous, you know, enormous scope and scale, right? So what is it, where are we today? you know, relative to this, we like common cause. In fact, we actually have a common cause. You know, the, 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 our common cause is, you know, is, is really that we, we, we don't have one. <laughs> um, you know, our, our common Individualism. cause is, is, is exactly, our common cause is to keep each other from having a common cause. That's what benefits us, in, unfortunately, in our society today, right? Think about who is rewarded for leadership in our society today, right? We are, we are ultimately a self-centered culture that, that is rewarded for not compromising. It goes back to that, that, that element we were talking about at the beginning, that quasi-libertarian credo that sort of underlies the tech, the tech success fantasy, right? It's this, I worked hard, I earned it, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I, you know, I, like I am a billion-dollar mine. I'm picking on the tech industry, but that's, look at why, why do we make, why do we, why do we crown our heroes? We crown our heroes because they embody the principles that we believe to be true. And we have crowned, you know, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and, you know, we crowned them our heroes. And it's because they embody this, this, this actual mindset that makes it almost impossible to achieve common consensus, to chase a common vision. And unfortunately, that's exactly what is needed to really scale almost every other industry that is even that even even vaguely resembles infrastructure 
If we instead say, okay, great, this is the hand we've been dealt. We live in an anachronistic, anachronistic society that is only looking out for itself and is only looking for the, the most yield on its dollar. You and I both know that dozens, hundreds now of pension funds, not just in the United States, but in the world, have invested in solar. Harvard's uh, endowment fund, practically every endowment fund, is now heavily invested in renewables. So we found a way to help the rich get richer using solar. But to your point, in the book by Ambrose, you told me one of the ways that they incentivize government-backed debt was based on this sort of, I equated to like the space race. It was like the, the track race of how to get track from one side of the country to the other. The same was in many ways true with, as I mentioned, the OG renewables technology, hydro. Why don't we just leverage and accept that? How can we take advantage, you uh, and every other utility developer out there, of that public desire to invest in something like an Apple, invest in something like Tesla, whose stock goes through the roof? How do we harness that today? We have wound up in a uh, situation where we've created through the products that are successful in our country, because they are very much focused on this sort of self-centered individual consumer market kind of growth, virality. <laughs> we have ultimately created things like social networking and, and other, other elements that actually create separate virtualized communities. And in those virtualized communities where everybody agrees with one another, it's even more impossible to achieve consensus. Because if you're not having to face each other each day and figure out what your common cause is, how you can both benefit and then drive that to the common vision to, to you know, build something bigger, you're actually seeing this individualism come together in products that then accentuate and, and, and accelerate the individualism. Ironically, the point you're making is that financial markets are actually one of the places where consensus is being built. And so, you know, if you, if you look at consensus as something that can be built through any one of our, our, our you know, sort of um, societal constructs, right? You know, um, you can kind of go back to uh, the guy who wrote Homo Deus, right? Uh, the, uh, what does he call them? Um, subjective realities, right? Those are things like technology products and, con and, and communities like social media. There's our government and there's our capital markets, right? And these are all different shared realities or shared social constructs through which we form consensus, right? And what's really interesting that you're pointing out is that, you know, while people love to hate the financial markets, they are perhaps the least schizophrenic and most functional form of social consensus that we have in our society today. It's a sad reality. And part of that is because, the, you know, Frankly, it's a relatively homogeneous group of people that participate in financial markets. The broad retail market is often intermediated by, you know, the pension funds or institutional uh, capital uh, uh, managers that, that stand between them and the financial markets. And most of those people have, you know, are, are you know, what we would consider coastal elites and share a very similar, you know, sense of, you know, vision and values. And so... <laughs> What's funny is that the, the capital markets are controlled by a group of people who probably have a pretty clear social consensus specifically around climate. And then, you know, you weave in the fact that they also are a group of people who are educated in and have a set of facts and figures uh, and, a, and an analytical way of looking at the world 
that then also highlights to them the problems of climate and its impact that, that, will, that will happen, not just to the environment, but also to the financial markets. So it has a sort of self-serving element for the community, which is, you know, they are the type of people who will dig in and understand those numbers and then recognize that it is an existential threat to their, their existence as a financial market and, it will, and they will fix it. So that is one element that, I mean, it's an interesting observation. That is one, one element of our society that probably still functions with some kind of consensus that allows it to chase a broader vision. So, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's the, the, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition, if you will, of how our capital markets seem to be doing better at dealing with climate change than our government and societal constructs. Well, and there are billions of dollars being poured into what's called ESG. And we've talked about that here on the podcast before. And if that's true, and people are willing to invest in environment, sustainability and governance or environment and social governance, I always forget what ESG stands for. ESG funds as an esoteric vehicle are more than willing to back this, but the average consumer can't jump in on that play. So uh, if it's true, as you have well stated in your article, that if we can build the kinds of plants that Intersect Power is building day in and day out to reduce the overall operating cost of glass, steel, and cement, then we ought to be able to bring those back to, to, to the stateside. And that begins the process of the persistent flywheel necessary to build 50 years of job creation. You know, at the end of your article, you made a, a very cogent argument for the kinds of what if and what next uh, statements that one expects when they start reading the article, right? To become the cleanest, you say, the, to become the, the cleanest and most competitive producer of energy and carbon intensive products, or formerly carbon, we need to use these cheap PV modules, and I'll say by extension, renewable power products to make the US the world's largest producer of clean energy for the next 50 years. And that inexpensive power can then become the cleanest and most competitive production capacity for energy and carbon intensive products. Talking about products we've made for generations, steel, cement, and glass, along with new zero carbon products such as green hydrogen. And with that comes job creation, and with that comes a slew of other societal benefits. So again, how do we get there is the thesis, and how do we build this common cause? So yeah, so first of all, I want to put a pin in and come back to what you, what you said at the top of that question, which is around really the place of growth, clean infrastructure companies in the, in the capital markets and in the, and in the, public, the public consciousness. I'd, I'd like to actually end with that topic because I think, you know, we, 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 can, we can, let's cover the rest of this and I think it will build naturally to an answer there. But, you know, to, to address, your, to address your, 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 the balance of your question around the answers, if you will, how, do, how, how we fix this, you know, I think, I think the, 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 the point I was trying to make at the, at the macro level toward the end of the article is that we need to stop thinking about green energy as an end. It is, a, it is, a, it is an end to some degree, exactly. but it is yeah. actually a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Well, what we need to start thinking about is a cogent United States industrial policy that can be built around climate. You know, you look at the history of this country, we've sort of stayed away from industrial policy, meaning, you know, the, the planned economy, if you will, of, of what it is we're trying to develop a strategic advantage in and, you know, what products would make sense for us to build and that sort of thing. We've sort of stayed away from it, but by de facto, by, you know, we've, we've sort of backed into industrial policy. Like, mm. for, for instance, we had an industrial policy of making guns and weapons for, you know, for what? 
80 years, you know, like, and that was industrial policy dictated by our geopolitical choices in the Cold War, right? And, and since then, we've, we, you know, then we, then we went and we sort of deregulated the, the market, we passed NAFTA, we, 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 we were the world's sort of poster child for liberal economics and, and globalization in the, in, the, in the 90s. And a lot of that was pushed by financial services and tech that wanted access to international markets and wound up trading off essentially our industrial manufacturing you know, capabilities. And I'm not saying yeah. it's bad. I'm not against globalization. I just, I think we're looking back on it and realizing that we did it without a plan. And, and there's a lot of things to unpack there as well, which we should, we should do. But when you look at what, I guess, the solution is, as you're, as you're getting to, the solution is to have a plan for where you're going and what you want to be. And I think that that plan is green energy, but that green energy is, is the way you get there, not the end state of the plan. The end state of the plan is that you use green energy to build the world's most competitive industrial economy that is also clean, right? If you look at where steel and glass and aluminum and cement are going to come from in the coming age, they're going to require enormous amounts of energy, clean energy, because no one's going to buy steel that has carbon, high carbon content 20 years from now. And we have the ability right now to stop fighting rearguard actions against Chinese solar modules, right? That's the silliest thing ever. You know, how many, how many solar plants have we tried to bring to the United States to build panels? First of all, they build the most highly automated plants in the world here because labor is too expensive. So there's very few jobs. Secondly, you know, they're, they're not very good jobs. You know, they're not unionized. There's no unions built, union jobs building solar panels in the United States, right? There are hundreds of thousands of union jobs building solar plants in the United plants, States. Yeah. And there could be for decades to come. What we should be doing is letting China, you know, the Chinese government is funneling billions of dollars to the module industry in China. No doubt. They're subsidizing the hell out of it, right? But if you just look at it this way, turn it on its head, let them pay, let them buy modules for us, basically, by subsidizing the price. We'll take all those cheap modules, we'll ship them over here, we'll use the subsidy to pay union labor to build, you know, power plants in America, right? So basically, the Chinese government wants to pay our union laborers. Great. Let's let them do it. So that's what, how we should be thinking about planned industrial policy. And the broader vision for where you go from there is now we've brought in millions and millions of, of Chinese modules that make cheap, clean electricity. And they don't do it for a year or two years like your you know, consumer electronics life. They do it for 40 years. So you've just bought... 40 years of clean, cheap power that is highly subsidized by, the, by your largest trading you know, competitor and geopolitical you know, competitor. And they've given you something that is going to give you free, you know, very cheap green electricity. If you're looking at the world as green energy is the means, not the end, you can very clearly see that they're, they're essentially enabling you to build and rebuild your industrial economy for the, you know, the 22nd century. And yet we're turning around and saying, no, 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 no. It is a fundamental and profound lack of imagination on the part of the United States government and its you know, people. You also made a point that I thought was really interesting and, and turns the model on its head a bit. And it comes back to my question about the public dividend. Is there a public dividend for this kind of investment? That's a, a question of kind of coming back to what we said before about the railroads, right? And that is... You've got to create communities where people are forced to come together. 
and create that common cause. And that common cause comes from having everybody participate in some to some degree in the common vision. Everybody needs to benefit from the common vision, right? What the problem we have right now is that the common vision is the way our government has laid it out actually threatens many people's way of life while it benefits others, right? And so, you know, for many people in this country, you know, it threatens their political, uh, their economic livelihood while, yeah, while we can all sit here and say, yeah, you know, you know, like academically, yeah, you know, but it means that their, their houses won't be flooded and, you know, you know, they won't, you know, everybody will have something to eat in a hundred years. That's not what they care about. They care about having a job that they can go to that, you know, gives them a lifestyle, a middle-class lifestyle, allows people to put their kids through, you know, they educate their kids, send them to college if they want to go there, live the American dream, if you will, right? And, and the problem we have right now is that the existential threat of climate change exists, and it exists for all of us. But we have not had any leadership that has been able to articulate for us a common vision for solving climate change that can bring together a common cause of, you know, basically all Americans to, to go and chase that common vision. And, and so, you know, you've got to find a way to make sure that everybody benefits from achieving the common vision. And right now we're not doing that. We, you know, we have, you know, capital markets that will benefit. We have companies that are producing some of the equipment that may benefit, but we, we have yet to articulate a really solid plan for uh, sharing the benefits of the transition to clean energy. The reason it's a political thing at all is because it, in the near term, it, it threatens some people's way of life, even though in the long term, the existential threat is much larger. You know, um, you know what is that? I'm, I'm going to misuse it, but behavioral economics, right? Recency bias or, 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 the, or the inability to think long term. I mean, you, it, it, these are natural responses to the situation we've set up and only our leadership can change them. Well, Sheldon, I'd love to know what the what the Suncast audience thinks. I'm also really curious what the broader uh, American audience thinks. I'd love for our, our Suncast tribe to share these thoughts, to share the article uh, and see if we can get, I'd love to see if we can get Mark Andreessen to respond. So I challenge you, uh, dear listener, to see if you can connect the dots here. And uh, what do you think? Is this argument, is this argument cogent? What do we need to work on? This is not about, is Sheldon right or wrong? This is about, as an industry, how do we raise awareness of our perspective in a way that creates a common cause and in a way that begins to redirect these funds and regulatory policies toward rebuilding the, the fundamental infrastructure that can, that can, in fact, repower our, our labor, repower our, uh, our economy. Sheldon, any parting thoughts here before we, uh, before we close out? I want, I'd like to just juxtapose kind of what I think it'll actually, you know, what it, what it might actually take to to fix this thing versus what we're probably actually likely to muster in our current situation. I think the the reality is that, you know, we have some very, very, very large issues. And, you know, me standing here as, you know, the CEO of a you know, relatively small renewables company, it's a delusions of grandeur sort of uh, thing to think that I, I have much say in any of, of this. but. If we could really fix this, again, we would use some combination of, you know, education, a refocusing of our society's decision making on, you know, trusting science and scientists to combined with, you know, this, this ability to benefit, to make sure everybody benefits from the transition. 
the combination of those things, education, science, and, and a, a redistribution of the benefits of this transition is, some, is what I think in its, in, you know, optimally would, would ultimately you know, bring about the common cause we need. Then I think, you know, ideally, government would not take the you know, AOC route with the Green New Deal, and they would work more closely with industry to better understand what that, 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 that actual planned industrial you know, policy is for the long term, right? Why, you know, if we're not going to build modules, what do we build, right? Do we build, you know, electrolyzers? Do we build, you know, new green products that aren't dominated yet by other markets and then defend those markets somehow, educate the, the workforce to do those things? Hand in hand, government and industry, people that really understand what can get built and what should get built, we need to start acting like China does. We need our government to start acting more, a little bit more like a company with a business strategy, right? That's what, if you're going to compete with China, that's what you got to do. We could otherwise just stop trading with China if you want, but if you're going to compete with them and you really want to trade with them, you have to take at least elements of their of their of the way they approach things, right? Which is they have a business plan for their economy, right? And we do not. And so I think at a, at an optimal level, I would love to see those types of things, you know, take off. You know, I'd love for people to start seeing government spending as true investment, right? Let's go into debt. Fine. Let's 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 you know let's go two trillion dollars into debt. But if you put it into, you know, high speed rail, clean energy, you know, charging infrastructure, public education, these are things that do, you know, pay dividends. What is the IRR? What was the IRR on the on the Transcontinental Railroad? Right. I got to believe it was pretty enormous. Right. And so, you know, these are the types of things that long term vision, that long term business plan for our economy that people call industrial policy. That's that's the ideal. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get there. So when we look at, you know, what our country can probably muster, um, you know, one of the reasons I've been such a big supporter of, you know, the Biden campaign and the sort of Biden build back better plan, it's not far off, right? It's, it's, it, it is a, it, it really captured my imagination because it really hit on exactly what I said at the top, which is I don't, I don't believe in the Green New Deal. Why? Because I don't think the Green New Deal is, is real. I don't think it was written by anybody who knows anything about you know, infrastructure or the policies that are going to make it happen. But I do think that the Biden plan um, and, you know, before it, the you know, plan put out by Jay Inslee and that, that to some degree was, was you know, a, a building block of the Biden plan is, is the way forward and is a reasonable path forward. The combination of, you know, empowering labor, uh, economic development, economic recovery, all in the service of, you know, and, and social justice, all in the service of, you know, building a, you know, uh, uh, a cleaner economy, rebuilding the United States economy around clean infrastructure. That is a vision that is far more ambitious than any presidential candidate in history has ever articulated for our country in both with both with respect to industrial policy and also with respect to climate. So I, I'm, I'm all for it. I think that getting elements of that plan done, even without a, a, a Democratic Senate, are our best hope for, you know, again, linking the solutions to climate change to, you know, a, a broader industrial and social policies that then really can create the common cause and allow us to go tra- chase down these big visions that our country should be achieving, um, that we've achieved in the past, and that we really haven't had any hope of achieving in the last, you know, 30 years. Sheldon, there's a ton that uh, still I think someone will get a lot of value out of if they go back and read the article. I'm going to take a little bit of the Thunder by 
essentially quoting the last two lines as we wrap here. What is needed is the political will and societal consensus to make these changes. You say, it's time to dream and steal again. You know, I, I sense a little bit of Churchill in you. And I wonder, you know, you, you're a tech startup guy in Silicon Valley. I kind of feel like I'm getting an overtone of some political direction. Uh, you're not, not angling to go run for office sometime soon, are you? I, I grew up in a, in a household that was very political. My parents got kicked out of South Africa for being involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Politics was everything in my household as a kid. I will not say that at some point in my life, I haven't wanted to, nor, nor will I say that I never will run for office, but that's definitely not the intention of what I'm doing here. I definitely understand that following this conversation or reading the piece, a lot of, a lot of listeners may well sort of say, well, you know, what the hell is this guy? You know, who, who is this person to, to tell What's me? What's your angle? Yeah. Yeah. You know, why, why, like, you, you know, go back to, go back to, you know, go back to like your small, you know, relatively small solar developer and, you know, shut your mouth. Um, but, but I think the key is our industry needs to lead and we need to lead not just within our industry, but we need to lead societally. What we have is a societal problem and we aren't articulating a vision that people find to be worthwhile. And it's on us to do that. We can't wait for people to articulate a vision and then, you know, we'll be the solution to it. We have to go out there and show people why they want our product, why they need our product. Who are the rock stars? Who are the people that have the microphone of any kind of clean infrastructure? You know, Elon Musk? I don't know. You know, you, you, you pick one, right? But there is some middle ground between, you know, me being a kind of buttoned up, financially focused developer of power plants and Elon Musk. And that, you know, there has to be a level of, we have to bring a level of inspiration and a level of common vision to what we're doing for the country. And, and I think that it's incumbent upon people like us to, or, you know, leaders in our industry to try to point out that we are in fact a growth industry. Infrastructure, while it is valued oftentimes on a discounted cash flow basis, is actually increasingly just as sexy and just as interesting and just as high growth as tech, both in the financial markets, but also societal. And so we need to make infrastructure sexy again. And the way to do that is to get out there and to, and to, and to really you know, take these social problems on and, and try, to, try to find and delineate common cause. Because all of what I've talked about, the common cause, the common vision is about bringing people together and leading them. And if you can't bring people together and lead them, you'll never have the common cause. Right now, our government isn't doing that. And it's time that our industry did. Well said. And I appreciate your leadership. Sheldon Kimber is CEO and founder of Intersect Power. And you can read his article. Uh, it's listed in the show notes at mysuncast.com. I hope that you guys will give us your feedback. I hope that you'll join the conversation. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'll no doubt have mentioned this episode over there. So join the conversation. Sheldon, thank you for joining the conversation here with us today. Thank you, Nico. All right. All right. Solar Warriors. Well, that sure was a really interesting conversation. Sheldon put forth a number of conjectures and positions that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I'm sure he would as well. You can find a post over on LinkedIn, as we always do, that uh, you could just comment on. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. If you find this compelling, please do share it with someone else in your tribe, in your community, your neck of the woods. 
because that's how we get found by others because kind people like you share it with them your neighbor your barber your sister your friend who just needs to get out of whatever they're doing stock trading and get into the renewable energy boom and if you are eager to keep learning then you my fellow philomath can find resources highlights and so much more from this and every discussion over at mysuncast.com click on the episode show notes you can subscribe you can share from right there on the website and you can click on another button called work with nico and learn how i can help guide you in your business growth or in your own personal career trajectory as your personal or company coach let me know if that's something that's interesting to you click on work with nico i do hope you'll tune in on tuesday as my friend josh beck will be coming back to talk all about how we are going to revitalize the steel industry here in the united states he works for the venture arm of bci one of the biggest steel contract manufacturers in the world it's going to be a fun conversation and i look forward to having it and have you listen along remember you are what you listen to so thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle